With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode. We are on Season 9, Episode 7. This week, we had the host of the Unjust and Unsolved podcast, Miss Maggie Freeling, who's one of my favorite people and favorite reporters. Maggie came on the show to talk about uh, kind of a combination. Her episode on Unjust and Unsolved was on Charles Erickson, who is connected to the Ryan Ferguson case, so we kind of discussed both. Uh, and hopefully all of you went and checked out Unjust and Unsolved and, and learned a little bit more about this case. It's very interesting, very complex, and there's still a lot going on with it. And uh, I have a bunch of questions from you guys. Got Mike and Zach in the studio. Hey, guys. Hey, guys. And we're going to get started right after a quick break. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications. And that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From Something Else, The Marshall Project, and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Ford Ranger, a vehicle for all terrains and every passion. It's a workmate, a playmate, and to its drivers, a soulmate. So how do you improve the Ford Ranger? You go all in. The all-new Ford Ranger, the UK's best-selling pickup. Now available with rear bumper steps, tailgate workbench, and enlarged load box that can fit a Euro pallet. Go break it in. Search all-new Ford Ranger. Ford Pro. Driving productivity. According to SMMT data, features may be optional extras with additional cost. Once again, I scoured social media this week. I pulled up a lot of questions. And we've got two that kind of go together, so I'll read them at the same time. Our first one comes from Katie. She says, I'm curious what the relationship is now between Ryan and Charles. I know Ryan has supported Charles being released from prison, but do they communicate regularly? Does Ryan have any animosity towards him? And then Donna asks, I would like to know how Ryan feels about his friend still being in prison and if he is participating in helping with appeals or in getting him out. I think it's fair to say, and Zach, you can chime in on this too, but I think it's fair to say that Ryan's not a fan of Charles. Yeah, from everything I've seen, they're no longer in communication, which, I mean, I understand if you're so-called friend puts you in prison for the last 10 years of your life. You know, they're, they're not in communication. He supports him being out and getting out, but it sounds like there's some animosity there. Yeah, I think that, uh, like you said, he has been supportive. Ryan has been supportive of the efforts to try to free Charles from prison. I think he definitely feels like it's, that it's wrong that he's still locked up. But 
yeah, I mean, he he stole a lot of years of his life. Mm-hmm. In my opinion, I think that I don't put the onus of that blame on Charles. I mean, certainly some of it's his fault, but he was definitely manipulated and coerced, and and he he had a lot of lot of issues. So, in my opinion, the the police and the prosecutor are to blame. And not so much Charles Erickson, but uh, you know, I can certainly see Ryan's perspective as to why he doesn't want to be buddies with this guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, I it doesn't feel like there's any ill will. You know, I mean, he's he is trying to help him get out, but there's no communication. It's it's past that. It's they're not buddies anymore. Right. It also should be noted that while Charles was responsible for putting him there, he also put a great effort into trying to get him out. Mm-hmm. Uh, when he finally released, it actually wasn't his uh, his recantation that overturned the conviction. That was that was ruled as being uh, by the appeals courts as being um, unreliable or unbelievable uh, when he when he recanted his testimony. Uh, but it got the ball rolling and got that into the next level of the courts, which is what actually finally overturned his conviction based on a Brady violation. All right, this next one's from Nick. Were they tried separate or together? And if one is free, why is the other still behind bars? Well, there, Charles Erickson was never tried. Uh, he he pled guilty, so you only, you only we only had the one trial. Uh, Erickson testified at Ferguson's trial against him, which I think that's probably where most of that animosity comes in, into play. From what I've read, Zach, you said you were just watching a documentary about it. Yeah, there's a documentary on Netflix called Dream Killer, but mm-hmm. it really just follows the Ryan Ferguson half. You know, obviously Charles Erickson's in it because he testifies against him, but it's more about Ryan Ferguson. Right. But I mean, he, whoever put Charles Erickson up to do this really taught him how to speak well. And, and I don't mean necessarily that he couldn't speak well, but like really taught him what to say and how to say He was it. heavily coached. And that's what oh, I was getting very at. very heavily coached. So I haven't seen the documentary, but, what I, but from what I read about the case, that his testimony was solid. He was heavily coached. He was clear and articulate and mm-hmm. just pointed the finger right at Ryan Ferguson at the trial. During his interrogation, even when he didn't believe he did it, it was still a lot of guesswork. And mm-hmm. through a lot of it, it was a lot of guessing. Oh, I guess I did this. I guess I did this. But by the time they got to trial, I mean, he was... You know, point on of this is what happened. This is how it happened. He's the one that did this. I did this. Right. You know, it, it was very clear. And Ryan Ferguson's defense was very poor, too, based on the documentary. I mean, really, really poor. Yeah. Can you give some examples of that? You were just talking about that before we came in here. So at one point, they had a aerial photo of the crime scene and the area surrounding it. The family asked the defense attorney if they wanted to label it for him. And he said, no, mm-hmm. no, I got it. And he got up there and presented this aerial photo, try, I guess, trying to ex- explain the route they would have taken or not taken. But he was pointing at totally wrong locations because he had nothing labeled and didn't know, actually know what he was talking about. And the prosecuting attorney jumped all over it and made him look like a fool. Right. There was other times where he would just completely get lost while questioning a witness. You know, it'd be like long pauses. Like and- long pauses would start to talk and just stop and like stand there with a really long, awkward pause and then start talking again. I mean, it was... I don't, I don't know what was going on there, but he was not a good defense attorney. Yeah, that's what I've read. It, it, he, was a, he did not do a good job of defending mm-hmm. him. They put Ryan Ferguson on the stand as well, which is pretty unheard of. In his own defense. In his yeah. own defense, which is pretty unheard of anymore. Mm-hmm. And he, they said that he was never you know, coached or talked to about it, never helped through it. Like They just, just, threw, him just threw him up there. And were like, all right, go answer these questions. Right. Um, yeah, the, the whole trial w- was a shit show, mm-hmm. to, put it, to put it mildly, from what it sounds like. But the big thing to me was the, and I, I've watched, I haven't watched Erickson's trial testimony. I've read about it, but I've watched his, 
the the videos that are available of his interrogation. It's like a different person. Mm-hmm. You see a guy sitting in the police interrogation that has, you know, it, it just I guess it just to kind of backtrack. So the way the way all this happened is is Heitholds murder occurs, mm-hmm. and it, the case goes cold for a while. I think it's I think almost two years, and then the police put out a a sketch, a composite sketch. Of the killer now, mind you, uh, Erickson at this point he, he was a he sounds like a heavy drug user, had some alcohol issues, had some you know, maybe even some some mental issues related to that or physical issues related to that. He sees the sketch and thinks it kind of looks like him, and he also has this kind of OCD and he starts perseverating on it. Right, like was that me? I don't remember what I did that night. It just it just gets just deeper and deeper down this rabbit hole because it all started because that picture looked like him or he thought it looked like him or resembled him. Ultimately that leads to him going into the police and I, I don't, he didn't turn himself in or right? I, th- I think he, he's, he was telling other people that he thought he, he and Ryan might've been involved in this. And then someone else told the police. That's kind of the way I perceived it too. Yeah. And so he goes in to talk to the police about it. And at the beginning, he's just like, I don't know. Like, and they're, and, you know, they're asking questions like, well, what happened? He's like, well, I don't know. I don't know if I was even involved. I just, I don't, re- I kind of blacked out. I don't remember what I did that night. That picture kind of looks like me. And the police keep pushing and pushing and pushing. And, and then they start feeding him details, you know, mm-hmm. like the, the belts. You well, know. you know, to back up on that, they, they were feeding him details and they would ask him questions. They said, well, they said, well, did you hit him? And he said, well, I guess I hit him once. Mm-hmm. And they said, well, we know he was hit more than once. And he said, oh, well, okay. Then I hit him more than once. And they mm-hmm. said, well, well, how did you, you know, how was he choked? And they said, you know, he said, oh, I, I guess, or how was he strangled? And he said, well, I, uh, we use a t-shirt. Right. Well, b- before that, the, b- the best, the, I think it was that question. His reaction to that was very telling. Like, how was he strangled? And he said, he was strangled? Yeah. And they're like, well, yeah, he was, he, he was, he was strangled. And how was it done? And then, yeah, like you said, they, they used, we used a T-shirt. We used a T-shirt. And then he said, well, we know that's not what he used. And he said, well, I, I don't know what we used then. Until they're literally like, they which literally one of said, you strangled with, strangled him with the belt? Yep. Yeah. And so, so the, the, then this goes on and on. But even as you're starting to get some sense of a narrative from Erickson about what happened during the interrogation. Then you have, uh, he's still saying, but listen, I don't know if this is what happened. This is what you guys, you know, I, I don't know what happened. Then the police come in and start telling him that Ryan has already confessed to this. Ryan's going to take a deal. Ryan's throwing you under the bus. You need to, to confess first or you need to plead out first because if he does it first, you're going to get more time. And they just manipulate, twist this guy into giving this confession. So that that's an end of pleading guilty. So you have the, the contrast of this completely confused. I don't know what happened. I you know I I don't remember. And the picture kind of looks like me to him sitting on the stand and just sharp and quick and just smooth and just giving looking at the jury and saying, yeah, I did it and so did he and this is how we did it. Yeah, I think that was the most damning point to for me when I watched that is the prosecuting attorney asks him. He said, why did you plead guilty? And he said, because I am guilty. Right. He said, I did it. He did it. We did it. Right. Yeah. And, and so that, so the, the other part of that question was, why is Erickson still in jail? It's because he didn't just plead guilty. He confessed, pled guilty, went on under oath at another trial and said exactly that, said, I am pleading guilty because I am guilty. And then even when he recanted his testimony, 
he still didn't clear himself in that. Mm-hmm. When he recanted to help Ryan, he he said that Ryan wasn't involved and that was a lie. But he, I believe, he still said that he did it. That he was he still believed in his own mind that that he had done it at that point. See, I've been on record over and over and over and over and over again saying he did it. And so then Ryan gets out, and again Ryan Ryan didn't get out because of Erickson recanting. That is part of what got him back into court, uh, but that that appeal was denied. He he got out because of a string of Brady violations by prosecutor Kevin Crane, uh, who was complicit in this whole thing. A couple of the main ones were there was a guy, uh, I forget his first name, last name Trump, easy to remember. Jerry Jerry Trump uh, testified that he had seen, I believe he testified that he had seen Ferguson and Erickson that night, right? His his original thing was that he saw two young males, leave. right? And then supposedly his wife sent him the article after Erickson confessed, and it had their picture in it. And he said that was. Them. And he was so shocked when he opened it that he saw these pictures of those boys because he said that was them, mm-hmm. which turns out was completely fabricated, right? And part of what was the Brady violation by the prosecutor was his wife Barbara Trump went to the prosecutor and told them he's lying. Mm-hmm. And Crane, the prosecutor, knew that it was false testimony and hid that from the defense. And then there was also a woman named Shauna Ornt, who apparently went to the police, told her, told them that she also saw two guys leaving the crime scene and said it absolutely was not those two. I believe she knew Erickson and Ferguson or, or she saw pictures, but she she told the prosecutor that was not the two people I saw. One hundred percent not. And that was also not disclosed to the defense. Mm-hmm. And so that that's what resulted in the conviction being overturned. But again, you still have Erickson on record saying he did it through all this. And so it becomes a much – and in that regard, we, we went through this in season two with, with Kenny Snow, and we had the, the tragic – the stroke of, of the witness, Bill Cole, that, that maybe could have helped him. But with all these other trials, so look at look at how Ferguson's conviction got overturned. It got overturned on a Brady violation because there's a whole when you have a trial, there's this whole process. There's there's the discovery process, which is where Brady violations occur, and then you have procedural errors in the trial. You have jury. There's all these different pools of things that you can pick through to see if anything was not done right, where he didn't get a fair trial, and that's enough to overturn a conviction. But when you just plead guilty. When you confess and plead guilty, none of that exists. There's nothing there. There's no substance there to pick through. There is no discovery phase. There is no pretrial. There's there's none of that. It was just he confessed, he pled guilty. That's it. And so that it becomes much, much, much more challenging to overturn a conviction on a guilty plea. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> 
Chumba. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Sarah says, has the DNA they have from the crime scene been run through any databases? I, I don't think so. My understanding is it was known even at the time of trial that there were fingerprints, a palm print, uh, a bloody strand of hair in the victim's hand. Uh, and then of course, blood evidence that didn't match. They, they, they tested it enough to know that it, it didn't match Ferguson. It didn't match Erickson and it also didn't match the victim. So they know that. So you have, uh, another party, obviously the perpetrators DNA evidence that was left behind but I don't believe that it was ever run through any databases. And I think that was part of the fight was to get that run through databases to see if they can identify who it belonged to. Kathleen says, is anyone working to solve this murder? I'm sure the defense team for Charles Erickson, uh, there's, there's definitely free Charles Erickson.com. They have a website where they're still working on his his legal battle. I believe his most recent denial by an appeals court was just this past June. I, I read an article that's up about 2019, but I saw something from June 30th, 2020, that said he had an appeal go up to whatever level of appeals courts was the next in line, and they straight out denied it, didn't even offer an opinion, didn't even say why, they just denied his appeal. So yeah, I think the only way that he gets freed is if they if they solve the case, and and I think there are people that are working on that. There's a team working on it, but I, I couldn't tell you who that is. Amber says, since Ryan is on the board of the Innocence Project, I think is he advocating for Charles to be released? Yeah, he is on the board of the Innocence Project, and as we said earlier, yeah, he's you know he again he's not a fan of Charles Erickson but he is he is an advocate for him to be released he he knows that he didn't do it and he needs to get out of prison joe says what legal hurdles exist because of the fact that charles pled guilty does that prevent him from seeking exoneration based on actual innocence it, actual innocence basically at this point is the only thing as we as i think we already kind of went through this but it's basically the only way that's going to get him out in habeas proceedings the tricky part is you're you're allowed to bring in new evidence, but evidence, but it's got to be new and compelling evidence to prove your innocence. And the problem is that prior to trial, or at least prior to his previous appeals, it was known that this DNA and fingerprint evidence doesn't point to him. So what that means is, and it's one of the broken parts of our system, is you can't use that information in a direct way in an appeal. Because basically they're saying, well, this was already known when you were convicted, so it's not new. Uh, which you know, on paper has as reasoning behind it, you know. So, you know, if you present a defense, say, you know, Zach is accused of committing a murder, and as part of his defense, I say, well, yes, but there was this fingerprint on the scene that's not Zach's, and then the jury convicts him anyway. And so the purpose of those rules are so you can't go to a, then an appeals court and say. But that fingerprint didn't match his because because they're, when they're they're looking at the procedure of the previous trial, it's like, yeah, the jury knew that and they weighed the evidence and still convicted him. So that's out of play now. So, yeah, I mean, it's really going to have to come down to in his case. And I believe Zellner's even been on. I, I don't want to quote her because I could be wrong, but, but I believe it was Zellner that was on record saying that 
that's the only thing that's going to free Charles Erickson at this point is to solve, to figure out who did it. Melody says, did the police or prosecutor get in trouble when it came out that they lied or misconstrued the facts? Now, the prosecutor, Kevin Crane, became a judge, I think, the year after this trial and maintained his judgeship through 2018, I believe. Uh, he did recuse himself from Ferguson's uh, appeals when he, when he was finally released. You know, and that, and as I said, that was to be clear, that was it was the Brady violations. It was his misconduct that got the conviction overturned. But the reason Ryan was never tried again is because the, the parts of the conviction that they weren't able to use anymore. The fact that Charles Erickson recanted his testimony and Jerry Trump recanted his testimony; those didn't work to overturn the conviction. But because those were no longer in play, prosecutors knew there's no way they could try him again without that without that evidence. But I know that Crane's judgeship came to an end in 2018. I don't know if that was due to an election, due to re- or retirement. I don't know why he stopped being a judge in 2018, but he's not serving anymore. But the answer is no. There's, there's this immunity for police officers and prosecutors that has some reason behind it, but it's abused. I mean, I mean, Ryan Ferguson had these years stolen from his life, and Charles Erickson, for that matter, due to direct intentional, blatant misconduct, you know, so in in Crane's part. So you have a woman that comes to you and says, look, I was there. I saw who did it. I saw them leaving, and it absolutely was not those two people. You have the wrong guys. And then he takes and buries that and and proceeds with with the trial and conviction anyway and doesn't even give that information to the defense so they had a fighting chance and then, you know, serves as a judge afterwards. Because, you know, there, there's this prosecutorial immunity that, you know, they, they can't really get in trouble. And, and only in very, very rare circumstances can they get in trouble for their misconduct. And it's, it's sickening. You know, that was another thing he did in the Ferguson case was while questioning or he asked her multiple times, you know, did you see the assailants? Did you see this? But purposely did not ask if you, you know, if the assailant is in the room. Right. Didn't ask her to identify who she saw. Yeah. Purposely, you know, and then the defense. Again, on him being kind of being not there, you know, he didn't right. ask either. Well, of course he didn't. Because, and I can't put that on him. I mean, uh-huh. you'd almost be. So you're assuming the prosecutor's putting her, putting her up. Mm-hmm. And she said, yes, I was there. Yes, I saw two males walking away from the scene. Mm-hmm. And then the defense and then the, and the prosecutor doesn't say, can you identify those men? Mm-hmm. And so the defense is probably because they don't know that she has told them that that she saw two different people. The last thing the defense wants to do is say, can you identify those two males? And they'll be like, yeah, the motherfucker's sitting right next to you. Yeah. You know, like that, they're not going to do that. And so, and that, that is, and for precisely that reason is why that Brady violation resulted in overturning the conviction because it, it, it would have made a, a difference in the trial. If he had said, do you recognize the person that did this? If she was like, not him, it was not him. Mm-hmm. But he didn't have the information to make that decision to ask that question. Brandy says, were there any other suspects? This case went cold fast. Yeah, so you have uh, two things that I'm aware of. One is what I just covered, which is the fact that Shauna Orns did see two people and knows it wasn't Erickson or Ferguson. That's a lead that should 100% be looked into. And then there was another suspect that Zach's done a little looking into. Which is Michael Boyd, who was a sports reporter at the, the same paper. And he was the last person known to be with him. He was, they right. left at the same time. He's the one that told the story about 
The weird story. The, the weird story about the cat that he stopped and fed mm-hmm. and left. But his story has changed multiple times, and he's never been cleared. Right. And and they, they have multiple people saying that they did have a tumultuous relationship. So, I mean, I'm not saying that he did it, but he was never cleared saying that he didn't do it. And he is the last person to be with him. He's, you know, I mean, there's a lot there that something needs to be looked into with that guy. Yeah. So what really needs to happen here is uh, there was asked earlier, is anybody trying to solve this case? This is where we have this other issue with prosecutors and judges protecting previous prosecutors and judges Mm -hmm. that needs to stop because this is a case like it's obvious that these guys didn't do it. And there's not many cases I'll say that. This is obvious. There's plenty of physical evidence. You have eyewitnesses on the scene. That that no that, that everything but there was and and to add to that, Ryan's car was searched. There was no blood on their clothing. There was, I think I don't it might have been off the air before we started recording. He said, you know, if these guys did this and they don't remember it, but if Erickson woke up the next day, there would have been blood all over him. Mm-hmm. He would have remembered that. Yeah, and that didn't happen. So so it's, it's obvious they didn't do it. So if you had a prosecutor, a new prosecutor now that said, you know what, these guys didn't do it. They could they could even advocate for the release of of Erickson or drop charges against him, but then say, "All right, now let's get our this is a solve this is a very very solvable crime. Mm-hmm. It's not something I'm going to solve or you're going to solve. You need access to this evidence, you know, and you need you need police power. But if they would drop the charges and open the case back up, this is a solvable crime. But the reason they won't do it is because they don't want to admit that Kevin Crane was corrupt and caused this whole mess." Mm-hmm. And, you know, I honestly think that the Michael Boyd is, is a huge person of interest and should be at least talked to and cleared. I mean, I don't think that he was ever right. You know, he was questioned multiple times, but they, his story changed multiple times. At one of the stories said he watched him leave, like right. watched him drive out of the parking lot, which clearly we know isn't true because his right. car didn't move. You know, and, I, and I'm curious about the if the two individuals that the janitor saw, if they didn't have anything to do with it, because one of the story, or, you know, the, the female janitor said that. One of them called and said, you know, yelled out, this guy needs help. Right. So if you just attacked a guy, why would you say that? You know I mean, if I just, if yeah. I just mug this guy and. So you're saying there could be other harm witnesses. this guy. Why would I say this guy needs help? Right. I mean, it is weird. They took off too, but I don't know. There's a lot there. Yeah. I don't know. And all that, all that sitting out there and, you know, and, and instead the police are like, well, here's a guy, here's a drug addict that doesn't remember what happened. I bet we could convince him that he did it. Mm-hmm. It is sickening. Sarah says, would you consider doing a full season on this case? Is there anything else citizens of Missouri can do to help? Uh, we would not do a full season on this case. There's, I would love to help Charles. I don't think that we could through our format. As I said, that, you know, this case is solvable, but what it needs are lawyers and it needs people on the, the state side to release evidence and do testing. There's, there's not much there. To investigate, there's also a ton of other media outlets that are already covering this. So, that, so you know, what we would add to it was just, it would just it would muddy the waters, I think, more than anything else. Uh, so, my recommendation to to help is go to freecharleserickson.com, and they've got all kinds of links and 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 references there that that can point you in the right direction to help. One of the big things it's it's kind of almost his last chance is to petition the Missouri governor to grant clemency. And this is and this is one of those cases where hopefully that that's something that should be done. I mean, anyone can look at this case. I would be shocked if anyone can look at this case and say, "Oh, well, clearly Charles Erickson did it," 
or that Ryan Ferguson did it. It's just it, it's a, it, in my in my opinion is an obvious case of actual innocence. So clemency from the governor obviously would get the job done, uh, but that still doesn't reopen it. More so, I think that just go to freecharleserickson.com and and get involved there. Lisa wants to know, how was the Brady violation not applied here? Did the court feel that Charles would have been convicted regardless if that information was or wasn't reported to the defense? Or is there something more there? Yeah, it's the fact that there was no trial. You know, there, the, the, there was no defense, and the state didn't have to make a case. He just he confessed, pled guilty, and there was no trial. So the Brady violation doesn't—you can't say that, well, if the, if the prosecution had made known to— the defense that he wouldn't have confessed and said he did it in great detail. It's just, it's just not going to help him. All right, Bob, that's all we got for questions. Thanks, everybody, for writing in. Before we wrap things up, what do we got coming up Sunday? I am really excited about this episode. I think you guys are all going to love it. So I am covering what is, is a super interesting case for a lot of reasons. So we're going to be talking about the Menendez brothers case. And the interesting part about it is not necessarily so much the case, which we do talk about, but it leads to a really great discussion about our criminal justice system. And my guest for this week is one of my favorite humans on the planet from True Crime Obsessed, Patrick Hines. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing, and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Our follow-up logo was created by Zach Weaver, and all of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedIntandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kaywood Yamnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, and Jen Reese in Candela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels. For just $5 per month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes videos of the creation of our Friday follow-up episodes that include 10 to 30 minutes of pre-show bonus chat. Other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. Just go to patreon.com truthandjustice. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. Lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice podcast fans page. 
For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. To follow our personal accounts on social media, I can be found at Bob Ruff Truth. Mike can be found at Murb Gaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. And Zach can be found at Z to the Q. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. I'm Zach Weaver. And I'm Mike Bussing. This has been Truth and Justice. Hey guys. Hey guys. Hey guys. That's a keeper. Hey guys.